Many of the world's problems can be traced back to ignorance, a lack of education. How do we roll back the ignorance? By getting people to read, for one. Literacy does much to strengthen education and society. Today's guest has many stories to tell on this very subject. Pam Allen is the global ambassador for the initiative Open a World of Possible, rolled out by Scholastic, the big publisher of reading materials for young people. Pam Allen is a literacy expert known in many parts of the world. She is the founder and executive director of Lit World, a global literacy initiative in the United States and more than 60 other countries. She's appeared quite often in other news media. We're glad she's joining us today on the Jefferson Exchange. Hi, Pam. Hi, thanks for having me. Let's talk about you first. What got you interested in literacy in the first place? Well, I'd have to say, you know, it's it's a lifelong passion for me. Um, it, uh, reading has shaped my life and changed my life from the time I was uh, very young, hearing my mother read aloud to me and the sound of her voice and, and the magic that created in my life. And then just beyond that, really, as I when I became an educator, really seeing that, you know, I think it was the Prime Minister Gordon Brown once said that literacy is the goal of all goals. And it's so true, whether we're studying engineering, math, medicine, um, or living our lives in empathy with other people, it's just, it's the, it's the foundational, uh, I think, it's the, sort of the bedrock of, of everything. And I see that with children time after time, that the opening of those worlds to them, whether by seeing themselves in, in a text and, and becoming empowered by that or seeing the possibility for something that they didn't even know they could become. It's very profound, much more than just words on a page. So I'd say it was my earliest passion, and it's my greatest passion. You mentioned being an educator. I was going to ask you about your uh, your career pathway. So were you a classroom teacher at some point? I was. I started out, in fact, I was talking about this this morning. I was giving a speech in Brooklyn, and I told the teachers there that um, I started my career just about two blocks away from where we were today in a, at a school called St. Francis de Sales School for the Deaf um, on Eastern Parkway in Brooklyn. It was a pretty amazing place to learn how to become a teacher. The children there were really coming from very, very challenging circumstances, not only poverty, but um, issues of inequity around their um, their deafness and even language barriers between them and their own parents. And it was there that I really started to think about what would it take to help all children become readers uh, because their lives were so constrained um, by a lack of access to literacy. And once even just the, the taste of it, the hint of it, the promise of it, I, I could see their worlds opening, opening up completely. Um, and one of the really powerful uh, reasons why I went and, and made my life work um, as a literacy educator because I, I saw what it did for the kids there and, and I really um, I think they were my really my greatest teachers early in my career. Well when you talk about kids like this it makes me realize that we are ultimately very different people if we are literate people. Yeah I mean actually I would say that's completely true you know there recently there have been studies done and in fact Scholastics who is sponsoring this amazing initiative Open a World of Possible has done many studies of this that reading text or reading literature actually really does change you not only in terms of how much knowledge you have or what you gain in terms of information which is important enough but even just in terms of building your capacity for empathy and understanding of others there was some study that just recently came out um, that, that talked about people who read fiction tend to be more empathetic in their everyday um, lives and you can see why that would be true it's just really helping you inhabit other worlds and I think that's you know, to understand where people are coming from and not see people as the other, but to really 
have reading become something that helps you to see how people are experiencing the world who are not you as well. Oh, I see. So the empathy comes from from getting to know the characters a bit more from the inside than you can in nonfiction? I think that's one thing. And I think um, just the the kind of awareness of a universality of the human experience. I think that idea that as I'm reading, I'm saying, you know, could this be me? Is this about me? Maybe this person lives or is writing from a perspective all the way on the other side of you know, the world, but that that person is as much of a human being, uh, you know, with the hopes and dreams um, and ideas for the future um, as I am. And uh, and I think that that really is a, I, I sometimes I say, I mean, I think if we can achieve um, universal literacy, worldwide literacy, I actually think in a very authentic and meaningful way, meaning it's not just about like decoding or parroting back text, but it's really about comprehending it and understanding it, I actually think it, it does lead to outcomes beyond, you know, all the obvious ones like public health outcomes and all those things, but even peace, you know, peace in general, that you can't see people as something that isn't you when you read, you read texts, whether they're memoirs, biographies, personal reports, personal narratives, or fiction, where you can say, you know, actually this happened to somebody and that somebody could be me too. What do we know then at this point about how much of the world is literate? Do we have a, a, a good figure on the rate and whether it is improving? Well, it's interesting, actually, that you would ask that. I, I actually really grapple with this. So I'll give you a couple of statistics that are kind of staggering in and of themselves. The official number from uh, the United Nations is that over seven, approximately 752 million people worldwide are illiterate, but uh, what my concern about that number is I think it's actually way too low because the way that we're defining illiteracy, um, when I'm traveled and my travels for Lit World around the world and um, in advocating for this idea of opening a world as possible through literacy, is I see that children can, oftentimes schools are um, enabling them, let's say, to reach a very functional level or even semi-functional level of literacy where they can identify alphabet letters, they can read um, simple text. But they're not getting past that point to what I call transformational literacy, which is using information for real purpose and using it for... you know, using it for your for the reasons that you need it for, whether it's reading a prescription bottle or making connections across two different kinds of text that you're reading or challenging your assumptions about something. Okay, Pam Allen, we need to take a break right here. Pam Allen's a literacy expert, back with her and with you on the Jefferson Exchange in one minute.
Back on the Jefferson Exchange on Jefferson Public Radio's News and Information Service. I'm Jeffrey Riley. Thanks for listening. Our guest today is Pam Allen, literacy expert, the founding director and executive director of Lit World, a global literacy initiative, the global ambassador for Scholastic's new Open a World of Possible campaign, and the author of several books. You can join us here on the Jefferson Exchange as we discuss literacy and how to get people interested in reading. 800-838-3760, around the listening area, 800-838-3760, or by email, jx at jeffnet.org. So, Pam, you were just talking about what you call transformational literacy. This is this is going beyond just being able to, to, to handle uh, little tasks. It's actually applying literacy on a much broader scope, it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. That, that's a great way to describe it. And I think then it becomes a tool that everybody can use and they can use for your own purposes. And the way, you know, thinking about um, this idea of what open a world of possible means is, you, you know, giving kids that toolkit that they can use literacy for, not just the letters of the alphabet, but also really understanding that reading can change your opinion about something. It can change your life in some way, and it can actually make you uh, think more strongly and more deeply about a lot of things. And I think that's where that light bulb goes off when we think about what functional literacy can be and what transformational literacy can be. And that's why those numbers are a little vague, because the way countries sometimes report the numbers is they'll say, okay, you know, my kids can read you know, Sally goes to the park, but can they really use their literacy in a way that's going to empower them? That's a whole different story. And I think that we have a lot of work to do before we get the world where it needs to be on literacy. But we're going to work together, and hopefully everyone listening will will join the effort. Um, In this particular case, my, you know, just thinking about making the, the subject of literacy important to people so they know how many kids around the world, and even right here in our own United States, don't really have the kind of access to great books and, and things that will make it possible for them to become literate. So we're talking uh, the, the figure that, that uh, you, you challenge a bit, 752 million illiterate around the world. That's potentially one in seven, one in eight people in the world who simply can't read. Yeah. That yes. is a lot. Yes, and, you know, and staggering, actually, um, and also just thinking about... The, the profound isolation of people who are cut off, especially in this day of social media where there's so many ways for people to connect, um, you know, whether and whether it's through, um, through, through the Internet or just really making all those human connections. And so we're really opening up uh, opportunity for people when we give them that toolkit. All right, that's one of the places I wanted to head was was uh, whether the new devices, they're not really new anymore, but, I mean, the ways that people communicate with each other, which is through text more often than voice these days, certainly in America, if that if that does actually help in literacy efforts like the ones that you're involved in. Yeah, you know, I definitely think so. I mean, I think there's plus and minus, like every great thing um, and every great innovation. I think that the, some of the what's great about technology and reading is it's giving more people access more cheaply, um, which I'm always a proponent of, you know, how we can be more economical and reach as many people as we can as readers. So a child um, who, for example, you know, can get access to a phone and then on that phone get an app like Astoria, which is an app for children um, that has a ton of children's books on it. Um, that type of thing is really incredible because it gives kids access. It may not be anywhere near a library or a bookstore. On the other hand, you know, you see it. I saw it yesterday. I was getting on a plane, and I saw a kid, like, click, click, click on his tablet, and he was looking at a movie 
um, which is fine. But I think, you know, there is that challenge of that high levels of distraction for our very young children and just wanting to make sure I want to give them as much access and opportunity as possible at the same time. I don't want I don't want them to lose the sensation of what it means to fall through the pages of a book and into the story. And I think we can do that on tablets, but I just think we've got to make a more concerted effort to help our kids get fully engaged. Do you have any particular feelings about the appropriate age at which to introduce electronics? I know we talked to uh, to the folks in one of the school districts in our region uh, where they're giving iPads to all the kindergartners. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, I would say, like, that, you know, that's a question I know teachers are often asking me and grappling with. And I would say, like any tool, um, I think we have to teach into it and not make an assumption that just because our kids are growing up with technology means they know how to use it that well. I think that was kind of a misapprehension early on where adults would kind of joke, oh, well, I'm, you know, the digital immigrant, whereas that child is a digital native. Well, Nobody's actually a digital native. Everyone's learning it together. And so if we give those iPad tablets to kids, I think we have to say, what are the apps that we're putting on there? You know, um, like I had mentioned Storia earlier, that's something, that's an app I really promote because it has authentic children's literature on it. But there are other apps that are not so great for kids in the age of kindergarten. And so I'm constantly promoting um, that idea of what are the educational ways that we can support our kids online. Um, you know, there's some really beautiful ways that the technology industry is creating opportunities for kids to become literate online. But we have to make sure we know about those things. Actually, um, the um, Open a World of Possible website that I'm really promoting has a lot of good suggestions for parents on there and for teachers. Like, how are we going to be readers in the new era? How are we going to help our kids become readers in the new era? And also the role that... Um, what, what's great, I love about literacy in this new era, is the way it's defined as reading, writing, speaking, and listening. So even thinking about radio as part of literacy, listening to oral storytelling and the kind of conversations we're having. So an iPad is great for that. You can tell, you know, say to a kid, look at this amazing site where we have actors reading aloud from children's literature. To me, that's literacy, and I love the fact that we do that for kids. Pam Allen's our guest in the Jefferson Exchange, a literacy expert and the global ambassador for the Open a World of Possible campaign rolled out by Scholastic. Tell us a bit about the, some of the the the, uh, the facets and the and the components of the Open a World of Possible initiative. Well, first and foremost, um, the initiative is really an educational uh, message, and that is really, I think, galvanizing uh, people all around the world. And that is to say that reading is far more. Um, than just that, you know, that thing you do um, when you have to do it, but that it's really this, this transcendent experience that every child has a right to have. And so the campaign is both about um, inviting everyone in to tell their stories about how when has reading made your worlds open so that we can share those with children and that children can share those with each other and that parents and teachers can promote this idea of reading as this opening of worlds. Um, so the website scholastic.com and then uh, backslash open a world of possible is giving people an opportunity to tell those stories about how when has reading felt like that, like it's opening the world. And then the second thing is what exactly we've been talking about, which is so great in this conversation, is there's a lot of distraction out there. I think parents and teachers have a lot of questions right now. What does reading mean to our kids? How can we best support them? What does digital literacy have to do with this idea of becoming a lifelong reader? And so the campaign is really also promoting 
um, helping parents and teachers navigate these new waters um, and through the Scholastic site, giving parents and teachers tips about how to be really actively involved in your child's reading life in a way that really suits the 21st century um, and also puts books into their hands that, that are really books that kids want to read. And I think that's the final most important piece of this initiative is that we really value reading for pleasure, that when I read, I'm choosing to read because I, it matters to me, not because I have to do it or because someone told me to do it. And the more minutes that we read a day, the better. So if your child is reading from the back of the cereal box to the graphic novel to the browsing book about dinosaurs, all of those things actually matter to build that child's life for reading. And so we're really trying to spread that message so that the parents and teachers all trying to do the right thing by saying, put down that book you like and pick up the book that just won the award of some kind or another. We're saying to them, listen, it's just as important for them to read that easy reading book, to read that book that's going to make them build their re reading stamina and their reading muscles and, and help them fall in love with the pleasure and power of reading. So that, that re is that a key that has been missed, you think, in previous campaigns and initiatives, just getting kids to read the stuff they want to read for pleasure? Well, you know, it's funny because, I mean, I definitely think that it seems so obvious to us, those of us who love to read, that seems like such an obvious message. But when we were listening, when, when Scholastic was building this initiative and really went out and listened to children and really listened to the stories of what children were saying about their perceptions, about what adults want them to, why they want them to read, it was all kind of about, like, take your bad medicine. You know, kids were like, well, my teacher said I have to do this, or my teacher said it's really important. If I don't do this, I'm not going to get smart, or I'm not going to go to college, or I'm not going to get a job. There's a lot of kind of um, very, uh, sort of, in a way, a feeling of not, uh, not a lot of positivity around it. And when we really all sat down and thought about how important reading is to us because we love it, we started to try to think, how can we help our children hear the story of that and also tell their own stories of that? Because when, they, when you ask them, what is it going to take for you to become a lifelong reader? They'll say, let me read what gives me pleasure. And we, we really started to say, listen, minutes matter each and every day, parents listening today or teachers listening right now. The minutes a day that a child reads, no matter what they're reading, really does matter for building that capacity. And so I do think this is a, a very special message. We're talking to Pam Allen, literacy expert and uh, the global ambassador for the Scholastic Open a World of Possible campaign. You can join us as we discuss literacy, reading, reading for pleasure, and, and all the facets of trying to get people interested in reading as a lifelong thing. Join us on the exchange at 800-838-3760, anywhere in our listening area, 800-838-3760, or email us at jx at jeffnet.org. Is there a pretty good benchmark for minutes a day and, and uh, at what age? I mean, the the minutes increase with age, for example? Yeah, um, I think I would say, I would say this, um, that what reading, independent reading and reading for pleasure looks like at the younger ages might look a little different, and I can say a quick word about that, but that the minutes should increase as the child builds stamina, just like when you're thinking about running or doing anything you really like to do. You can do it more minutes every day based on the kind of muscles that you're building. So there is a sense of, in terms of age, that the fifth grader can sustain longer periods of time as an independent reader. So for sure there's that. But I would say, on the other hand, if we name certain behaviors as reading, so let's take a kindergartner, for example, a five-year-old. The five-year-old may not be reading complex text in the way the fifth grader is reading that text, but that kindergartner could browse 
through a picture book, get the different pictures on the page, read with a partner, um, practice even, you know, certain new words on the page, even start to practice how those words sound or even looking at the look of the word. That, that child, that kindergartner can sustain quite a bit of attention to that as long as we name reading in all those varied and wonderful ways. Um, and given that definition of reading as the reading behaviors and browsing and rereading, I would say my rule of thumb is 20 minutes a day is everybody can do it. Um, whether you do 10 in the morning and 10 in the evening, if you're a parent at home, whether you do as a teacher 20 minutes, but you really give kids a chance, especially in the primary grades, to talk with each other as readers, to sit side by side as readers, um, not to feel that you have to only read one book in the 20 minutes, but maybe I, I read my dinosaur book for a few minutes, and then I look at my picture book for another few minutes. And then, but they can do it, actually. Um, and if you feel like if listeners listening are feeling like, wow, that feels like too much, I don't know if my kids can do it, start with smaller increments of time and even you know, really applaud and celebrate your child. Wow, you know, we all read for, our whole family read for three minutes today. Let's try four minutes tomorrow. So you're, like, less focused on the titles of the books or this is a good book and that's not a good book and more on. Let's, let's put our time in. Because when you think about it, like, soccer is that way, playing the violin. You know, you put your minutes in the bank. It's going to work for you later. And that's, I want, I want kids to feel like not only are they putting their minutes in, but it feels good while they're doing it. So, for example, for soccer, you know, I can kick the ball into the net a thousand times, and it doesn't maybe look like I'm playing a game, but actually that makes me a better kicker later. It's the same with reading, too. So that kindergartner can sustain 20 minutes, but we want to make sure we define reading for her in a way that feels humane and developmentally correct. Here again, it sounds like leading by example is an important component. So rather than just say, okay, take your 20 minutes now, and it does feel like an assignment, then like, I'm going to read now. How would you like to read, too? Makes it a different kind of transaction. Yes. I mean, I would say, you know, people often ask me what's, what are like the two biggest things. And I would say, you know, number one is this idea of active mentorship on the part of all the adults in that child's life, that whether it's the, you know, the parents, the grandparents, the caregivers, the teachers, the principals, everybody that child is coming in contact with is in some way, shape or form connecting authentically with text. So to be as real as you possibly can be in your own reading life with your child to say, you know, you have to read a hard book and then you yourself are reading People magazine on the airplane, that's not really being that authentic, you know. So I like to be as authentic as I can as a mentor to students as they're learning to read and to also acknowledge the struggle in reading. I would say, I say to my students, every single day at some point of the day, I am a struggling reader and I'm proud of it. And I, I, I have a lot of resilience as a struggler because I know when I get to a hard part, it doesn't mean anything bad about me. It means that I'm, I'm going to take that reading challenge. And so I really try to model that. Sometimes I'm reading hard text. Sometimes I'm reading easier text. Sometimes it depends on what time of the day it is even. Like at night, I try to read lighter books. In the morning, I'm reading the news. And kids are really fascinated by how we read as adults. They think this is all very intriguing. They think we're reading like Anna Karenina every single day, 10 hours a day, you know. But the truth is we're really not, you know. And and so that's, that's just part of it. And then the second thing is the access to variety of text that you as a mentor, whether you're a parent, an aunt, an uncle, a friend, a teacher, to a child or to a young adult, 
um, is to say to them, you know, I'm noticing I read a lot of variety, and I want to make sure you have variety, too, whether it's the Archie comic books or the video game manual or the back of the cereal box or the graphic novel that you're going to, I'm going to make sure that in your reading life, you get all the access to all that variety, too. You know, the, the world has changed so much. When you said People Magazine, my first reaction was to wonder if there is still a People Magazine. But yes, I know I've seen it at the checkout stands. But, you know, for example, if I were trying to direct young people to like, well, you know, you know read, read about the world events, go to Newsweek. Oh, wait, there is no Newsweek anymore. I mean, this is, this is the situation we find ourselves yeah. in with the world changing this fast, is trying to find good examples for young people to reach out for. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think with, with that, though, I think there are lots of also, there are new examples of pretty cool things. Like there's a website called Wonderopolis, which I really love, um, that where kids and adults are posting, um, it's a, you know, very teacher-friendly site. Um, parents are reporting to me they like it, too, where everyone's sort of posting their biggest wonderings, you know. So it might be, um, you know, how does an octopus see to move? Or uh, or I wonder how cities get planned? Or how does a bridge get built? Or, um, or you know, how high does the sky go? Lots of questions kids have in their minds. And what I like about this is it's a different way of getting the news. There's there's a, another website called Newsomatic that has a lot of really great news at the levels of kids that kids can read at. And I think to share with kids that it's while you're right about that, you know, maybe Newsweek itself doesn't exist in the print form anymore. That at the same time, kind of stunningly, there are a lot of opportunities and examples for kids and adults to read in a wider variety of informational and narrative text than maybe than ever before, because it's also that. What I think this 21st century is empowering um, people to become is is writers are writers themselves. So that you know there are blogs, there are websites, there are are really great um, ways for people to come together around all the interests that you have. I have a group of boys that that we're working with right now in New York City who just love wrestling. And when we show them how many opportunities there are for them to read and learn about wrestling, they they can't get over it. So lots of opportunity. That's a fun juxtaposition, wrestling and uh, reading. We'll talk much more about uh, ways to get people to read at a young age. Pam Allen is our guest on the Jefferson Exchange, a literacy expert and the global ambassador for Scholastic's recent Open a World of Possible campaign. Join us on the Jefferson Exchange when we come back. Back with Pam Allen and you in a minute 30.
Final segment on today's Jefferson Exchange. I'm Jeffrey Riley. Thank you for listening. Our guest today is Pam Allen, a literacy expert. So we're talking about literacy and reading. Pam is the founding director of LitWorld, the global literacy initiative in the United States and more than 60 other countries. She's also the global ambassador to the Scholastic Companies Open a World of Possible campaign and the author of several books. Join us on the Jefferson Exchange as we talk about reading and literacy and reading for pleasure and instilling that that, uh, that craft in kids. Join us on the exchange at 800-838-3760 around the listening area. 800-838-3760 and our email address jx at jeffnet.org. Um, the idea of reading for pleasure, I wonder if there's anybody who tracks uh, whether this is gaining or waning in popularity around the country. And uh, it does seem like it needs to be a concept that's reintroduced every couple of years. Hence the Open a World of Possible initiative. Yeah, it's it, it, absolutely. Like I, I think it's 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 one of those great topics that we kind of, as I think, as a collective community, um, it's great to come back around to it and to say, one, are we making time for it in our own lives? Two, are we valuing it in our children's lives? And three, are we valuing it in such a way that children know that we value it? Which is why I really do totally love and am completely passionate about this initiative, the Open a World of Possible initiative, because. To put it out there really explicitly, we value reading for pleasure. We value reading independently, choosing your own books, making your own book choices or text choices. I think we kind of assume that kids know we feel that way, but if what they're mainly seeing is us on our phones or, you know, rushing, 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 they may not really know or glean that we actually not care about it, but it's still incredibly vital in terms of what happens to us as adults. And so, um, and what it does for us beyond uh, all of the uh, kinds of things that it does in terms of sharing, like I said, you know, information and giving us an openness to the world, but even just in terms of comforting us and making us feel less alone when we read something that really moves us, those are really important things. And so I think the statistics are funny on this because um, people do predict, you know, dire outcomes. And then when the studies are done, for example, there was a recent study that showed that um, teenagers, in fact, are reading more than ever before. And one of the reasons is because actually, interestingly, the publishers have really responded to a whole surge in interest in young adult novels. So I think it really was, I would say, you know, Harry Potter had a huge impact on this, where suddenly everyone, not only were kids reading children's books, but Young adults were reading them, and adults were reading them. And since then, there's been just an absolute outpouring of quality for young adults that actually really adults love, too. And I, I, love, I love that whole genre. And, um, and what I think that's done is it's made teenagers you know, into readers, whether it's The Fault in Our Stars or, um, or a great book called Wonder um, or The Hunger Games is another great example, that these books are all turning people on to reading in a way that maybe they didn't have access to those types of texts, you know, 10 years ago. So I think for all that technology sometimes poses that distraction dilemma, actually publishers are publishing much more that's really resonant for children and young adults than ever before. There's been much of an argument, along with all the other arguments about how to improve schools in America, about the way to teach reading. And I know it seems to have oscillated between phonics and whole word. Has it settled on either one of those at this point, or is there still that debate going on? Well, what's amazing that's happening right now, which I'm most excited about, 
really a big, big advocate of um, these uh, literacy debates because I think it's very healthy. And I often say that to teachers, you know, teachers have the hardest burden because they are meant to sort of absorb the debate of the country or the state or the community and then deal with how it gets implemented in the classroom. And that's really a hard burden on them. I really celebrate teachers because I think people really underestimate how hard that is. You know, you talk about things in the news and then they're supposed to translate that. So that that's kind of what happened with the phonics whole language debate where people got really polarized. When, in fact, I would say 99% of all teachers I would talk to would say to me, Pam, you know that it's actually a combination, that children don't learn to read just by learning phonics, and they don't learn to read just by osmosis, that there's a combination of both. And so what what's pretty exciting right now, I think, in public education is that um, there's a lot of discussion now about what does new era reading and writing look like, whether it's through standards, whether it's state-based standards or the Common Core standards. What I love about this conversation is it's getting people to really talk about what is it going to take to raise lifelong readers, that we can't just have that one or the other conversation anymore. And what the conversation has now gone to is, in, in such an incredibly powerful way, is kids need to be critical thinkers. They need to be able to read and understand text very closely and be able to analyze text. They need to be able to read across a variety of genres and not just not just a chapter book, but also technical text and um, informational text could potentially save their lives if they're reading something about a medical condition or something like that. So what I love about what's happening right now is it's a much, much more deeper conversation. Uh, it's not just should we teach kids how to decode or should we teach them how to comprehend? It's we have to do both simultaneously all the time, which is why teaching reading is so hard. And the one thing I'd add to that is I think what's pretty amazing in the conversation is that kids need authentic text to be able to do that, that actually that there are really important things in Harry Potter that can actually teach a kid how to comprehend more fully and more deeply that reading for pleasure isn't separate from learning to read. And I think that's the biggest breakthrough probably of ever in public education and the thing I'm the most excited about that's happening right now. That's an interesting point. I mean, kids learn to to figure out what is not getting said or how to find the thing that people don't want you to find, which is one thing, one thing that Harry Potter was really good at. Yes. I, you know, yes, I, I think you're right. And, and I think that actually children's book authors um, are doing pretty serious things for children in a way that I think maybe, you know, we never want to underestimate. In other words, when people, I think, used to say, well, we can't do that fun pleasure reading now because we've got to get right down to the business. But the child understands that when the child, for example, is reading a book like Clifford the Big Red Dog, that child might be really young and that book might seem very simple on the surface. But what really the child is experiencing is trying to figure out how am I growing? I am growing. Like my body is changing. I'm growing bigger by the day. Is that good? Is that bad? How do I feel about that? And then that child reads Clifford, and it's funny how big that dog is and how he sometimes doesn't fit in the house and how his friend Emily Elizabeth loves him anyway. And those kinds of growing conversations that we can sort of overlook in a book like that, reads that book a million times to try to understand the bigger themes and messages and the things that child maybe has never talked about to anyone else. Or in a book like Harry Potter where Harry... You know, he's an orphan, and part of the year he lives in a really bad situation, actually. And some parts of those books are very, very sad and, and very moving. And, and I think people really underestimate that. They'll say, okay, 
well, what does Harry Potter have to do with instruction? But really, you're learning about an archetypal hero who started really alone. Nobody really understands him. Nobody's really advocating for him. And then he goes to Hogwarts, where he becomes a hero. And it's that school, the school of wizardry, teaches him how to find what's powerful within him. And that's what, I mean, that's what a child learns in Harry Potter. Pam Allen, again, our guest on the Jefferson Exchange, a literacy expert and the global ambassador for Scholastic's Open a World of Possible campaign. Given all the countries in which your own uh, company, the Lit World, works, um, I wonder what what you know about uh, differences in cultural attitudes in many countries around the world about reading and and uh, where the United States might rank on that chart. Are we just sort of like, yeah, we can learn to read, or are we really excited compared to other countries? Wow. Well, that's an excellent question. I mean, first of all, I would say that I've never been, I travel, I have the very good fortune of being able to travel for my work all around the world. And I've never met a child or a parent or a teacher who did not hunger for that child reader. And I, so I think it's a universal hunger. I think people see the value of it. Um, I remember um, I was in Liberia right after the Civil War ended there. And I saw people gathering around on the street um, in, a, in a big crowd, and I went over to see what was happening. And it was the first newspaper freely published in, in Liberia right after, and, and this man had just laid the newspapers out all across the street. And people were paying him like a penny to take a, a walk just around the newspaper just to be able to read it all together. And it was just an amazing thing. I'll never forget it as long as I live. And when you think about that, the the barriers to literacy and how profound they are for people living in um, countries that have a high ratio of poverty and how deadly that actually can become when you look at, for example, the Ebola crisis in Liberia and so many people living without literacy who didn't get access to information quickly enough and how life-threatening the lack of literacy can be. That That's profound, and I think people really get that. And then the second thing is, though, I would say the United States, one of the ways I think we lead the world, really, and I mean this in the most serious way, is we value children's literature in a way that no other country has caught up to us. I think we're the great world innovators on children's literature, and that is to say um, that we promote it, we value it, we publish it, we sell it. We have libraries full of it. We have school districts, like right here in my own hometown of New York City, that hugely value and in the classroom. And I think that's something that, as I'm traveling around the world, I really talk about, that the children's literature, children's literature that is written just for children, has a place in the classroom, is a newer idea in, in, in many countries. But it's changing, because I think people see the excitement around it. And I think that's uh, an area that the United States really leads the way in. Within the United States, though, I, I, I was thinking about uh, foreign cultures and, and feelings they might have about literacy, but within the United States culture, there's, there seems to be this issue, and I'm not sure if it's uh, if it's something that seems to be on the rise again or what the issue is, but the we have the discussion about uh, boys and what the deal is with American boys and why they seem to be um, somewhat re- resistant to uh, to learning in our culture. Do you notice that rising in America? Yes, actually, yes, and I wrote a book a few years ago for Scholastic called uh, Best Books for Boys, um, in which Scholastic asked me to investigate this issue, and something so great about about the company is they they are very concerned. Uh, They're always thinking about the the whole audience, not just the special few that already loved reading when they came into it, 
And the statistics um, were showing us, the, the test scores were showing us that the boys were not thriving um, at all in the way that girls were on these state tests around reading and that teachers also reporting right from the front lines that their boys are really d detached and really disconnected from the life of a reader. And so when I went about researching this, I went right to the sources and I asked the boys themselves, what would it take for you to become a reader? Uh, because this is really concerning to us. We want to make sure we do this right. And over and over again, the boys will say, you know, I, I want to have the kinds of text in my hands that actually I really want to read. And the fact is a lot of, you know, 90% of all teachers are women. Um, we're sort of gravitating to books that we might like. Um, a lot of boys have told me they don't public, they don't like reading books by women, that they, they find that somehow embarrassing, that there's a lot of cultural stigma against boys as readers, um, that, you know, when you look at, like, sports on TV, the the kind of the, the sort of the heroic boy is the boy who's playing, moving, uh, running, uh, knocking into someone, um, and that's very sort of elevated in our culture. And so the boy sitting quietly with a book in his hand, especially a book by a woman, is not that highly valued in our culture. And so that's an issue right there that boys talk to me about over and over and over again. And I, I, I think what's really important for us is to, A, show authentic reading experiences and what boys have passions for, whether it is sports or something else. I mean, girls have passions for sports, too. Um, so there's that gender equity piece. But also that boys need to see men reading. Um, and one of the reasons J.K. Rowling decided to use J.K. rather than her name Joanne is because she really felt that boys would be more likely to read her book, knowing that she, not having to say that that was a man or a woman. And I've seen that over and over again. Um, E.B. White cleverly did that in reverse. Um, but I do think those are subtle, hidden issues in our culture that prevent boys from just really sitting down and acknowledging themselves as readers. And then the second thing, just making sure that we give them access to the kinds of text they really want, which is one of the things I love about the year of standards is that there's a big push for us to bring informational text into literacy classrooms and have it not just be about chapter books, but also to be about information, um, because I think boys really feel that they feel have felt left out. You know, if I like to read the facts, you know, 10 fun facts about dinosaurs, I want to be called a reader too. So I think you're right. It's a big problem, and I think it's a problem that's not a boy's problem. It's really a problem of society that we need to acknowledge and honor and own and also make sure we get a lot more men into the field of teaching, too. Is the, uh, is the Scholastic Open a World of Possible initiative uh, considered something ongoing? Is it something that's got a two-year horizon or something like that? Well, you know what? That's funny because a lot of kids have been asking me that, too, and um, and they want it to go on and on. So I'm hoping that it goes on forever. Open the world of possible always, today and always. So join us. All right, join Pam, us in it. Pam Allen is the founding director of uh, Lit World, the Global Literacy Initiative, and the Global Ambassador for the Scholastic Open a World of Possible campaign. Pam, thanks so much for talking to us today about literacy. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. And that'll do it for today's exchange. You can find out more about the program and subjects and suggest guests at jeffexchange.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. On the air in the morning. The takeaway is coming up next. On the air in the evening, we're followed by news from the BBC. The Jefferson Exchange is produced by Charlotte Duran of JPR News, also at the controls today. I'm Jeffrey Riley. Thanks for listening and have a great day.
Friday on the Jefferson Exchange at 8, Monica Webby's run for the U.S. Senate. Plus, we observe Halloween with the people of Oregon Paranormal. Who are you going to call? At 9, DNA and more with Christine Keneally, author of The Invisible History of the Human Race. That's all on Friday's Exchange. And you can listen to today's program rebroadcast tonight from 8 to 10 here on the News and Information Service of Jefferson Public Radio. Welcome to As It Was, Tales from the Mythical State of Jefferson. Many words left behind by early Spanish explorers as they named settlements, bays, and rivers.